One of my cousins has always been a devout Catholic. When we were kids, before I was a Christian, he would often inspire me by his desire to read the Bible rather than play Atari video games or watch TV with us. When we grew up, it was uh, no surprise that he found a pretty young Catholic girl to marry. And they lived what seemed to me an uh, ideal husband and wife team. But behind the scenes, there was something going on that was not so obvious until much later. For reasons that are known to me, my cousin and his wife grew unhappy with each other in their marriage, which bore no children, and it went in a direction that I never thought it would have. Not long after, it became common knowledge to all the extended family that my cousin's marriage was on the rocks. And being a strong Catholic family, only a small hand of us were Protestants, most are Catholic, uh, because of that, divorce was not supposed to be an option. That's why we were all surprised when my cousin, this ideal devout, ideal devout Catholic from my childhood memories, wrote an open letter to the entire extended family stating that he and his wife had indeed filed for divorce. Many family members were disappointed to hear this news, and my cousin, being as bright as he is, knew that he had to explain himself, he had to justify himself before his family. And he wanted to defend his decision to get a divorce. In the open letter, he revealed that he had a level of unhappiness that was beyond what he could take. His uh, defense lay in giving reasons why his personal happiness was the clear goal of pursuing this divorce. And after giving several reasons why, he fortified his argument with a divinely powerful reason that God wanted him to be happy. Does this story sound familiar to any of you? It does to me. There is a man-centered doctrine in the church that we will unmask today. And it is a doctrine that means to destroy believers. It means to destroy fellowship in the church. And it means to destroy our fellowship with God. It is a doctrine that God wants us to be happy. It's not a complicated phrase, but it's a dangerous one by which Christians throughout all the ages have divorced over. They've cheated. They've stolen. They've lied. They've avoided responsibility. They have become bad stewards of finances. They have avoided sharing the gospel. They've murdered in their hearts, and they've avoided honoring, serving, and worship God. Where does this desire to be happy come from? From a humanistic perspective, it seems like that's the goal of life, isn't it, to be happy? Doesn't everybody want to be happy? Does this desire come from God? Doesn't our own Declaration of Independence state that we have inalienable rights, including the right to pursue happiness? Several experts on happiness seem to imply that wanting to be happy is an innate human desire. Here's what some of them say. One says, when I meet people from other cultures, I know that they too want happiness and do not want suffering. This allows me to see them as brothers and sisters. That was the Dalai Lama. People take different roads seeking fulfillment and happiness. Just because they're not on your road doesn't mean they've gotten lost. That's from H. Jackson Brown, Jr., the author of Life's Little Instruction Book. I don't know if you've heard of it. One of the, oh, here's another one. One of the first conditions of happiness is that the link between man and nature shall not be broken. Okay. That was from Leo Tolstoy. Uh, if you've heard of him, he's a Russian writer, novelist, essayist, dramatist, and philosopher, as well as a self-proclaimed pacifist, Christian, anarchist, and educational reformer. Okay. <laughs> Another one, the supreme happiness in life is a conviction that we are all loved, loved for ourselves, or rather loved in spite of ourselves. Okay, that sounds kind of wise. That's from Victor Hugo, the guy who wrote uh, the, the Hunchback. That's it. And uh, here's a short one. Wisdom is the supreme part of happiness. 
Sophocles. Very, very straight to the point. I like that. Now, to contrast that, here's a little longer one from Aristotle. Happiness is something final and complete in itself as being the aim and end of all practical activities, whatever. Happiness, then, we define as the active exercise of the mind in conformity with perfect goodness or virtue. Try teaching that to high schoolers. Okay. Try teaching that to adults. <laughs> and then there's my personal favorite. You're going to like this one. That's the difference between me and the rest of the world. Happiness isn't good enough for me. I demand euphoria. <laughs> Calvin. Not John Calvin of the Reformation. <laughs> the comic strip character of Calvin and Hobbes. Okay. What's wrong then with the statement that God wants me to be happy? Can't we deny, or can we deny that, that God wants us to be happy? Didn't many people in the Bible seek personal happiness? What parent, and many of you who are parents, what parent doesn't want their child to be happy? Shouldn't the goal of parenting be to raise happy children? Well, one thing's for sure. If parents spent all their time making sure that their kids are happy, kids would never learn to deal with struggles or pain or anything challenging in their lives. It would teach them that the purpose of their parents' lives is to simply make them happy at all costs. Now, if I ever become a father, I'm going to be in serious trouble. If I have a daughter especially. I know for a fact that if I have a daughter, my number one goal would be to make her happy. She'd be my happy little girl, my princess. If I had a son, he can take it. I can do I can do whatever I want. But if I had a little girl, she would just get away with all murder. She could do no wrong. And I would still want her to be the happiest child in the world. She better have a strict mother who would keep her in line as well as me. That's all I'm saying right now. <laughs> but unfortunately, many adults, including Christians, have indeed stood on the statement that God wants them to be happy. But if that statement were true, then wouldn't the will of God be dependent on what makes us happy? My personal happiness becomes the ultimate determinant as to what the will of God is. Is that what scripture says? Is that what it teaches? Certainly there were many in the Bible who did pursue happiness, weren't there? There were Samson with Delilah, David with Bathsheba, Lot by living in Sodom, Jacob by stealing his brother's birthright, Esau by giving away his birthright, the prodigal son by wanting his inheritance, and the rich young ruler who uh, was happy with his works and his riches. Didn't, want God, didn't God want these people to be happy? Here is a brand new hermeneutical tool for the emerging man-centered church. Scripture is to be interpreted in a manner that makes you happy. Listen to these phrases. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if it makes you happy. Love your neighbor as yourself, but only when it makes you happy. You will not murder unless your happiness is compromised. You shall not steal except for when the thing you're stealing brings you happiness. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, if it makes you happy to do so, and repent and sin no more, as long as your happiness is intact. You may never hear these statements come from uh, the pulpit in an emergent church, but believing in the principle that God wants you to be happy makes these statements doctrinally sound in a man-centered church. When pleasing men becomes the center of the church's mission, it is then up to men to fulfill that mission. And the more happy men become in their pursuits, the more they will want to achieve on their own power. What is the result when men embrace the belief that they can achieve anything, including their own personal happiness? It would mean that man is no longer weak or impotent in his ability to save himself, because happiness is salvation. God is no longer the exclusive source of righteousness. My happiness makes me righteous. The mission of the church is no longer to preach the gospel to the spiritually dead so as to make them alive in Christ. Instead, it is to preach the potential of man to achieve the moral goodness embodied in the humanistic ideal 
the pursuit of happiness. The church does not have the mandate to teach its members the knowledge of who God is. Instead, it has the mandate to teach its members the possibility of what man can become and motivate them to achieve it. Sin is not seen as missing the mark of God's perfection, but avoiding moving forward in human potential. Humanity is not judged by God's perfect standard, but by how much it has achieved and how happy it's become. Christ's death on the cross does not pay for the sins of men, but it merely demonstrates the length that men should go in following their humanistic calling, even to the point of death. Christ's example was just so that you can follow your dreams as far as they'll go, even if it means dying for it. And the word of God is no longer the infallible, inerrant source of universal truth, but merely a guide that one should, one should be interpreted, it should be interpreted according to how, how it may inspire you to be happy or to find happiness. The effect of humanism in the church is for man to become less and less dependent on God and more self-dependent to the point where God is no longer needed. What then happens that man becomes the one entirely responsible to make him happy? What does the Bible have to say about man's certain happiness? Well, if you haven't gone there yet, turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 in our study of God's word this morning. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Let me read that. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. True happiness is found in God and the blessings he gives us. But man-centered happiness can only lead us to destruction. This passage in James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, is a passage that shows the destructive nature of this man-centered happiness. In fact, this passage shows how man-centered happiness destroys the blessings that God gives us. Three specific blessings here that this man-centered happiness just demolishes in our lives. First in your outline is that man-centered happiness destroys the blessing of fellowship with the saints of God. It destroys the blessing of fellowship with the saints of God. If we read verse 1 again, it says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? And whenever there's a problem that needs to be resolved, wisdom would dictate that the source or origin of that problem be identified. If something is destroying the wood in your home, don't you just... You don't just fix the damages, you also find out where the damage is coming from. You look for leaky pipes, you look for termites' nests, or whatever else might be attacking the wood in your home, because to simply continue to fix the damaged areas without confronting the source would guarantee that you have to fix the damages again in the future, and again, and again, until the source is discovered. The church has faced many problems over the years, 
And here, James addresses one of the worst problems a church can face, quarrels and conflicts. Throughout this section of Scripture, James relies on a picturesque battle scene, by the way. Several of the terms he uses are those that are used in a battlefield in a military conflict. To prove his point that the problems he addresses were severe, he uses two terms that intensify the level of quarreling amongst those who claim to be Christians. The word quarrels, for example, it literally means wars and conflicts, better translates as fights. In other words, James is not addressing simple disagreements that people argue their cases over, but instead he's addressing what seems more like battles between enemies and brawls in which participants would strive to win by inflicting harm and pain to each other, and this to professing believers. He is is asking his readers what the cause is for professing Christians to be at war with one another. What is the source of this quarrel? What is the source? Where does it come from? What is it that destroys the blessing of fellowship with the saints of God? James answers the question for us. Your pleasures that wage war in your members. Interestingly enough, the word for pleasures in the text has a root in the Greek, and the word is adami, if you know Greek. That simply means to be happy or to be glad. This is that man-centered happiness which we pursue while claiming all the while that it is God's will for us. When in, fact, when in fact, the opposite is true. These kinds of pleasures are always identified in the Bible as detracting from following God. Pleasure leads away from God. This, source, this type of pleasure takes you away from what the will of God is. Uh, turn for a moment to Luke chapter 8, verse 14. Luke chapter 8, verse 14. Luke chapter 8, verse 14, is uh, in the middle of the parable of the sower, where Jesus is giving a lesson to his, to his followers. And see how the word is used. It says, And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way are choked with worries and riches and pleasures, there's a word, pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. When the seed of the gospel is sown, these types of pleasures lead you away from that seed. Now, if you flip over to Titus 3.3, 3, do a little bit of flipping here. Titus 3.3. 3. Titus 3.3 3 is a section that describes what we were all like before we became believers. Titus 3.3. 3. It says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. See that word, pleasures? This is, a t- this is a type of pleasure that we pursue when we don't know God. It's a type of pleasure that leads away from pursuing the will of God. These pleasures choke away the message of the gospel and are characteristic of foolish people who would rather pursue them than pursue Christ. And why? Because they make us happy. It is a pursuit of this man-centered happiness that causes men, even believers, to wage war with one another. Here's what he's talking about. Go back to uh, James. And look at verse 2. It says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Here James outlines several examples of what his readers were pursuing to attain happiness. He also includes the disastrous results that follow, that the, the disastrous results that destroy fellowship with one another when they are denied their man-centered happiness. You lust, he tells them. Lust, what is that? It's an unquenchable desire. People pursue their lusts until they believe that they're satisfied. But it always comes back. You cannot quench lust by pursuing the things you lust for. 
and it's not and it's not restricting to the desiring of the flesh or sensual pleasures. Anything that can be coveted can become an object of lust. It was their unending desire, their unquenchable lust, that led James's readers to commit murder. That's what lust does. And we know that one can be guilty of murder by merely having a murderous disposition, fostering a hateful and brutal spirit. Christ says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, that you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever, sa whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Being guilty of murder is not beyond anyone, not even believers. James accuses his readers of this crime, but our very thoughts, the dispositions that we have, they accuse us. They accuse us when we war with each other, when we seek each other's harm just for not being able to satisfy our lusts. In the same way, James tells his readers that they were envious. This is an intense or hot desire to possess something. Now, before I was a high school teacher, I was actually a preschool teacher. And in preschool, there's a lot of examples of this. I remember a few years ago when I was supervising some kids playing with blocks, I noticed that uh, you had a little adorable little girl, just the most beautiful little girl you ever saw. She was standing by watching a boy play with a set of blocks, and I didn't think too much about it. But before my eyes, this adorable little girl turned into a covetous little monster, a thief, as she grabbed one of the boy's blocks and began to run away with it. And the little boy wailed out in horror that his block had been stolen. Luckily for me, I happened to be in the way that the little girl was running in, so I scooped her up by the hand, took the little block, and gave it back to the boy, and that was that. A little lesson, a timeout, and whatever. But it's not shocking that humans let themselves become their worst whenever there's something to be envious over. And again, as the verse says, the result, of, the result is a combative attitude and essentially a war, all over trying to attain that which makes us happy. Why not instead ask God through prayer if he would grant us that which we desire? But as James Reader's case, asking God isn't something we do if we believe we can attain things for ourselves. Even if we have to war over them, even if it means destroying fellowship with one another. But James still goes after those who did bother to ask God and expose their evil intent. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Have you ever asked anything of God with the wrong motive? How do you know you're asking with the wrong motive? James gives us the answer. The phrase wrong motives is an adverb. It's one word in Greek, an adverb, that can be literally translated as evilly. You ask evilly is what he's saying. Well, how do we ask evilly? It's not so much what we pray for that makes it an evil request, but the reason why we ask. The self is the focus of such requests. Whenever we seek, whenever we seek from God that which we intend to spend on our selfish desires, we do not look to glorify God but ourselves. Is it wrong to ask for money? Is it wrong to ask for more money? Is it evil to ask for a car? What if a family has a material needs and prays about it? Can't those who pray such things honor God with what he gives them? Yeah, the answer is yes. But God does not give to the one who seeks a type of happiness that comes from spending for pleasure. This would be a squandering of God's gifts, a waste of what he gives. James is telling his readers that God disregards the request of the one who disregards prudence the one who would consume his own means just as the prodigal son did in the parable that Jesus told. That is the person who would go to war with others just to be satisfied. This is the one who pursues that form of happiness that destroys the blessing of fellowship with the saints of God. 
Second in your outline is that man-centered happiness destroys the blessing of friendship with the Spirit of God. Let me read that again. Uh, man-centered happiness destroys the blessing of friendship with the Spirit of God. Look at verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The first thing that James does here is slapping his readers in the face with a charge of adultery. Here, he's referring to spiritual adultery, that is, adultery of the heart, just as he accused them of murder of the heart in verse 2. But here he's addressing an entire body of people, not individuals. How does a group of people, such as a church body, become like an adulteress? By being unfaithful. Now, the people he was addressing were Jews, and they would have been well aware of this analogy, that they would be aware that it was used before with respect to the nation of Israel. Several passages in the Old Testament tell us of the relationship between God and his people Israel and how he was a husband to her, though she acted as an unfaithful wife. If you, We're not going to turn to all these passages, but if you uh, look up Jeremiah 31-32, Hosea 3-1, Isaiah 57, 3-7, passages like these all talk about that. Listen to Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, verse 32. It says of Israel, you adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of your husband. As unfaithful Israel chose friendship with the world, too many believers today are also choosing the same thing. As the church is blessed to be the bride of Christ, many of its members are cutting off their friendship with the Spirit of God so that they may befriend the world because it makes them happy. What is a friend? As a high school teacher, I see all sorts of relationships among my students. Some are phony, but many are legitimate. One year, I had a pair of students in my class who only just met that semester, right there in my classroom, as a matter of fact. They were ninth graders, which makes them about 14 years old or so, maybe 15. They found that they had a lot in common, like skating and a taste in fashion. They seemed to be on good terms with each other, and it just so happens that one of them was only about five feet tall, right there, and the other one was well over six feet, somewhere up there. That was uh, the only real difference that you could see by looking at them. It would always seem odd to me, odd to me to see them together with their mismatched sizes. But one day something happened, something that solidified their friendship as true friends. The smaller boy would often bring a skateboard to school. But on this day, he came to class without it. He was obviously, obviously disheartened and kept his head down to hide his tears coming down his face. The other student immediately wanted to know what was wrong, and the first boy told him that a certain other student, who wasn't in my class, had taken his board. Well, class hadn't started yet, and the taller boy jumped out of his seat, went down to where the board thief had his next class, and as the class bell rang, he came back into the room, skateboard in hand, to a class full of clapping students cheering him on for the heroic deed that he just did. Naturally, I counseled the student off to the side about proper reporting procedures for stolen property and the danger there is in using your size for intimidation. But I believe he knew what he was doing, and the two have remained best friends, best of friends since I last saw them together. Friendship is a great thing because it means loyalty exists between people. It means that they're on good terms with each other. They're in league together for a common purpose. With friendship, there's trust, there's dependence, there's unity and satisfaction. Now, let's apply this to friendship with the world. And these positive elements begin to take a sour note. The world refers to the people and forces that are opposed to God and his plan to redeem sinners. These do not have to be open hostile to God, yet they seek anything to take the place of God in bringing themselves happiness and salvation. This is the friend we be, excuse me, this is the friend that we become loyal to when we choose the world. This is the one who we trust, depend on, and are united with and are satisfied by whenever we choose it over God. 
The only thing that is left is hostility towards God. Being hostile means actively working to disrupt the success or victory of another. This is another one of the military terms that James uses in this passage. It means to be at enmity with God. But listen to this. The one who is characteristically an enemy of God cannot be a Christian. Let me read that again. The one who was characteristically an enemy of God cannot be a true Christian. What does that mean? My point is that it is uncharacteristic of a believer anytime he turns his back on God to pursue happiness elsewhere. But we do it all the time. The salvation that we have in Christ breaks down the walls of enmity between us and God so that we can truly be at peace with God. If you remember Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 13 through 15, we won't turn there, but I'll just read it quick. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. How blessed it is to be at peace with God, but in seeking happiness by befriending the world, we destroy this blessing. James points out that we have a choice in the matter. He says that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says whoever wishes, whoever has a set purpose, a design, an intent, these people deliberately set their mind towards this goal. That goal is man-centered happiness, and that goal destroys the blessing of friendship with the Spirit of God. Now someone might ask, why can't we be friends with both? Why can't we be friends with both God and the world? James answered this by appealing to Scripture. And verse 5 reads, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, I'll be honest with you. I had a little discussion with Pastor Rich before I even started this uh, lesson. And we knew that there was a problem with this passage. Uh, Verse uh, 5 actually um, has at least three, maybe more, but at least three problems that uh, exegetes have to overcome before they even try to preach this passage. The particular verse has... uh, Excuse me. For one, there is no Old Testament passage that quotes the phrase, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Where did that phrase come from? Where did James get that from? Did he just grab it out of the air or did he find it in some other scripture, some other writing, some other uh, form of inspiration? In reality, this is not a major problem for interpreters, at least not the majority of them, because James is not quoting any specific passage and he doesn't claim to. The scripture refers to the sacred writings of the day, which is the Old Testament. It is the authoritative authoritative word of God from which doctrines and principles are derived. These teachings, so long as they remain true to scripture, are as authoritative as any verse that can be quoted. It is therefore not problematic to say that James is putting forth a principle that the scriptures speak to. God is a jealous God. And And it doesn't speak to no purpose. The phrase in your Bibles that says, speaks to no purpose, can literally literally be translated as speaks emptily or speaks vainly. In other words, not meaning what it says. The scripture doesn't do this. What James is about to say is not an empty teaching that is meaningless. Now, another problem with this interpretation of this text is the wording in the Greek. Now, I won't burden you with a Greek phrase, but the way it is written can either be saying one of two things. What the New American Standard Version has, most of you have that version. It says he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Or it can possibly be saying that the spirit that is the corrupt human spirit that dwells in us is prone to jealous desires, emphasizing our human tendency to lust and envy, which is kind of what he's been talking about at the, in the previous verses. Again, this is not a major problem for most exegetes because of the Greek form of the word dwell. 
if you see the word in your passage there, the word dwell. The grammar doesn't say that this spirit dwells. It says that it is made to dwell. Passive. This is speaking of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which God has made to dwell in us. So the wording in the New American Standard Version is much preferable to the other one. Now, the most difficult problem with this passage, then, is how can God or the Spirit of God be jealous? How could he jealously desire something? Especially in a context where jealous desires have been shown to destroy God's blessings. The answer to this is to look in the very thing that James referred to in this passage of Scripture. The Scriptures themselves. Turn for a second to Exodus. This is the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, as many of you know, is... Um, when Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, he's receiving the law of God. And verses 4 and 5, Exodus 20, 4 and 5 say this, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. See? He's jealous. Now turn over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There it is. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23 and verse 24 say this. So watch yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This theme is repeated in Deuteronomy 5.9, 6.15, 32.16, Joshua 24.19, Ezekiel 39.25, Nahum 1.2, Zechariah 1.14, and 8.2. I don't ramble these verses off expecting anyone to write them down. I just want to point out that the Old Testament scripture certainly teaches a principle that God is a jealous God that he jealously desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And what does the word jealous mean anyways? It simply, it simply describes the extent of a desire. In this passage, God is the one who possesses. He's the owner. He has, and he will not share what is with his with any rival. It is unimaginable that God would have to share anything that is reserved for him alone with anyone. God jealously desires our worship. He can do that because there's no evil intent with his desire. He is God, and he desires that we be satisfied in him. When we think about God's greatness and his infinite power, how can we throw away God's blessing and forsake his friendship? His desire for our faithful loyalty to him is for our good. What peace of mind there is to know that you're right with God. How blessed is the one who knows that he is a friend of God. And, the and it is possible only by, by God's grace. Go back to uh, James chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 6. Verse 6 says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6 is a key verse in this passage as it introduces grace into the picture. Up to this point, James's goal has been to chide and accuse his readers over their self-seeking purposes. But as twisted and evil as man can be, God gives something greater that is something better. Something more effective, more overpowering, and much more abundant than anything we could ever bring forth in sin. He gives us grace. Now, I'm very confident that there's many in this congregation, especially among the women, who have done personal study on the word grace. As a theological term, many of us already know that it means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. But just consider the source of the favor. This is unmerited favor from God. 
It points to God's generosity and effective help far beyond what man deserves. It clearly demonstrates God's abundant love for his people. And it is the only avenue for salvation in Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is God's grace that strengthens men to overcome their pursuit of selfish pleasure. It keeps men abundantly satisfied with God. So there is no need to seek out a men-centered happiness that destroys the blessing of God's friendship. And James does quote scripture in this, in this verse. He includes the Septuagint rendering of Proverbs 3.34, which states, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's worth looking at this passage in Proverbs to get the full idea of James's point to his readers. Turn for a moment to Proverbs 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Actually, we're going to start in verse 31 to get a fuller context. Proverbs 3, verse 31. Proverbs 3, 31. Many years ago when uh, we were um, a bunch of single guys in college, we tried to memorize all of Proverbs chapter 3, and I think we got up to verse 20, so we didn't quite get to verse 31 to 35. But this passage says, uh, starting with verse 31, Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. For the crooked man is an an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. That's the passage. He scoffs at the scoffers, and he gives grace to the afflicted. This passage demonstrated God's attitude towards his enemies and his friends. Notice the harsh stance that God takes against those who would be his enemies. They are described as men of violence, crooked, an abomination, cursed, and scoffers. The scoffer is the one who believes that he is in a much better position than the lowly, and and they laugh because of it. But God laughs at them. He scoffs at them. Now notice the blessed position of the one who God comforts as his friend. He's intimate with God. He's upright, blessed, righteous, and receives grace, even though he is afflicted. This is the person who trusts God through calamity. He suffers, yet he does not turn his back on God, as if he could find some sort of happiness outside of God's grace. Now turn back to James 4.6. James 4.6. And notice that the phrase, opposed to the proud, which corresponds to scoffs at the scoffers. Proud is what the scoffer is, and God is opposed to him. Here yet is another military term. The word opposed in this passage literally means to battle against. It is used to describe how a military force keeps the enemy at bay by resisting its advances. It doesn't necessarily indicate the destruction of the enemy. Rather, it describes the ongoing condition of fighting and stopping the enemy from moving forward in his plans. The enemy that God keeps from advancing is the proud. These are the arrogant and the prideful ones that rely on their own power to bring about success and ultimately their own happiness. A proud person is stuck up, haughty. They're a person who strives to show himself above others. He has too high a view of himself. This is the one who considers, this is the one who God considers his enemy, the one he will oppose to the very end. In contrast to this, the humble one who corresponds to the afflicted in Proverbs. This humble one is indeed afflicted. This isn't a reference to a person who humbly acknowledges his place under God's care. It's not talking about somebody who knows that he belongs in a low state. It refers to the one who is in agony. He is lowly in spirit because of what he's been through. He knows of his need for God's favor, and he desperately desires it. He he is pitiful in God's eyes, and God indeed pities him. So God rescues him with his grace. 
A clear, example, a clear example of this is the parable of Jesus about the Pharisee and the tax collector who both went up to pray. We'll turn for a second to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. This happens to be my favorite parable of Christ. Luke chapter 18, and we'll read verses 10 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Christ is speaking. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Back in James chapter 4. The, the Pharisee, this Pharisee, James's readers, and many in the church body today seek their personal happiness and their selfish ways, and through their actions, they end up destroying the blessing of friendship with the Spirit of God. Third in your outline is that man-centered happiness destroys the blessing of freedom to stand in the sight of God. The blessing of freedom to stand in the sight of God. That one gave me the most difficult um, alliteration device, but I found it. Let's read verses 7 through 10. It says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's very familiar to the parable that Jesus just read, that Jesus just said that I read. Now James gets really tough with his readers. And he gets equally tough with us today. He gives several commands, exhorting them to do away with their pleasures, to stop acting like scoffers and become the very afflicted ones spoken of in Proverbs 3.34. The first command that he gives us is to submit to God. Again, James uses a term that is used in military situations. It depicts a soldier who willingly obeys his superiors by following their orders. It means to fall under or to rank under. The, the difficult thing about submission, though, is voluntarily putting aside your will and taking on the will of another. In this day and age, this would be something demeaning. It would be below yourself to do such a thing. Today's self-reliance and personal achievement is exalted, even in the church, and is a humanistic path to salvation. People ask, why should I submit to your will over mine, especially if my personal happiness is at stake? There are many examples from my experiences as a teacher to illustrate this point, but I won't give you one from that. I have a different one. Before I was a teacher, I student taught in the day, but at night, I was a security guard in Pasadena. <laughs> and I worked in the evenings and the afternoons. I was even promoted to the supervisor position after working there for some time. And as a supervisor, I had the task of making sure the management's will was done by making the subordinates, by making the foot soldiers, if you will, do their jobs. Security guards have a bad reputation for many reasons, among which is their turnover rate. Now, I'm sure Dave can attest to that. <laughs> I could not believe how many people would come in as new recruits, for one, and for one reason or another, they were gone in a matter of weeks, sometimes days. People just don't like to be told what to, people just don't like to be told what to do, even if it's in their job description. 
The post orders included that security patrollers were to respond to the needs of the moment according to what the supervisor on duty demanded as needed or deemed as needed. Now, at the security post, there's a popular bar that is open late on the weekends. As soon as the bar closed, we had hundreds of patrons in all stages of intoxication go through our property in order to get to their cars and drive home. Well, that's safe. We would always have extra guards in that area to vigilize the property, while one guard patrolled a far-off area where there were no patrons at all, but still needed to be guarded, still needed to be patrolled. One Sunday night, I assigned the guards under me to their locations for the evening, as I was always, as I was always had done. But at that time, but at the time of the bar closing, as the patrons came out, uh, the guard that I assigned to patrol the quiet area, the far-off area, he was right there with the other guards watching the patrons, including several women whose attire called for men to gawk over them. Annoyed, I approached the guard and gently reminded him that his assigned post was over there and not here, to which he replied, you're tripping, man, you're tripping. After a special report to the manager for me, that guard was no longer at our post. What is it about submission that is so unappealing? Why do we fight against it? I'll tell you why. It costs us our personal happiness. It tells us to cast away what brings us pleasure and instead do what brings us pain. What reason, what possible explanation will make anyone willing to do this? James gives us a great reason, though. By submitting to God and sacrificing our pleasures, we resist the devil. Another military term, resisting an enemy, doesn't mean that an enemy is crushed. God knows that we have no power to crush the devil. All God asks is that we take a stand against the onslaught of the evil one, and he'll take care of the rest. There's a, there is a promise that goes with this. Resist the devil, it says, and he will flee from you. As the devil sees that his efforts are unsuccessful, he leaves. How many times, though, have we seen defeat in our, in our lives over sin? Day in and day out, our comfort in Christ's promises and blessings is diminished, and we are prone to look elsewhere for happiness. But the more we sin, the more we feel defeated. We don't stand. We don't submit. This is the affliction that we face as Christians, but God's word tells us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Submission to God, therefore, is not for the purpose of making us miserable, it is how we receive the greater grace in our afflicted state. It makes us free, free to enjoy God's blessings, free to be happy with what God gives us. It is the freedom to stand in the sight of God, covered by the blood of Christ, to be blameless before him. Next, James tells his readers, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. To draw near to God means to seek close communion with him. It means to pray. It means to meditate on his word. It means to shut out anything else that would struggle for our affections and focus solely on God. The promise here is that God will draw near to you. Now, there's a potential to misunderstand James in this passage. There are some who say that if we wish the favor of God, we must come to him. If we want his mercy, we need to approach him and ask for it. We need to be the initiator in this process. But the truth is that God's favor and mercy are given to those whom he wishes. Romans 9, 15 and 16 say, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. So then what does James mean? He means that when we seek God's comfort through intimate fellowship with him, he is there to give it to us. It means that when we seek happiness in God, we find it. But as James knows, he's writing to those who have been unfaithful to God. He gives more commands for the assurance of their sincerity. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let's consider these for a moment. Why would somebody need to cleanse their hands? Why, why do people go to the bathroom and wash their hands? Because they get dirty, right? Cleansing their hands removes the dirt and impurities that stain our hands so we can shake other people's hands, so we can eat with them without making us sick. 
The spiritual meaning behind this phrase, though, is to wash away the stains and impurities that we have in our consciousness. James refers to his readers as sinners, those who miss the mark of God's perfection, those who are dirty and filthy. Our sins make us filthy and unfit to stand in the presence of God, but through the blood of Christ, we're clean in his eyes. Likewise, James commands us to purify our hearts. This points more to the priestly role that we have in Christ. In order for a priest to stand before God, he needed to purify himself both physically and spiritually. Purifying the heart is a spiritual purification. Why does the heart need to be purified? Because what is really being purified is the innermost being of man, not an organ in the body that pumps blood. The heart is the seat of life, the collective energy, the reason, the emotions, the will, the morals of man. The condition of the heart is the condition of the man, the entire man. Therefore, it is the entire man that is purified when the blood of Christ is washes us thoroughly. We must be constantly purifying our hearts because, as James calls his readers, we have the tendency to be double-minded. To be double-minded is to be unable to make up one's mind. There are two choices, and this one wants both. He therefore chooses one and immediately goes back to choose the other, and it goes back and forth, continuously, endlessly, as long as he is double-minded. Turn back a page or two for a moment to James 1.6. James 1.6. Here he depicts a man who cannot make up his mind, which is a detriment to him. Verse 6 through 8 read, But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James says back in chapter 4, To purify your hearts, that is, cast away the evil choice and choose God. Do not go back to your selfish desires. Do not be unstable in your choice. Enjoy the blessing of the nearness of God. Only after a priest is made pure can he stand before God, and only then can he truly see the value of God's grace. It is the same for us. When we seek a man-centered happiness, we become unstable, torn between two masters, which makes us impure and unworthy, unworthy to stand in the presence of God. Cleanse your hands, he says. Purify your hearts, he commands. Don't be proud. Be afflicted. Make yourself the lowest of the low. Verse 9 reads, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. How uplifting is this? Doesn't God want us to be happy? Well, if our search for happiness is not centered on God, then God wants us, he wants us to find the opposite of happiness. Can you imagine my cousin or anyone who seeks a divorce citing that God wants them to be happy getting this as counsel? I'm going to be out the door. There are several words that need to be studied closely for a better understanding of this passage. First is be miserable. This doesn't mean to just feel bad. It means to suffer hardship or distress. Don't just be sad. Be wretched. Be in agony. Second is the word mourn. This is what happens when someone dies. It is a call to passionate grief. And the command by James has the added effect to let this grief be shown. He wants to see the external expression for what one feels like on the inside. He says, prove to me that you're in turmoil. Show me that you're in pain. Let the world know how you feel. Third is the word weep. Again, this command is for an external expression, and it means to cry out loud, releasing the built-up inner pain that comes from feeling utterly helpless. Have you ever felt utterly helpless? Back to preschool. My very first day as a preschool teacher, I was in charge of supervising the afternoon nap time. It was my responsibility to make sure that the precious little monsters, I mean angels, were not playing around but lying down calmly as they would get, it would help them fall asleep. Well, there was a certain little angel who decided that she didn't need a nap, 
In fact, she didn't need a nap, so why not get up out of her cot and play with some toys on the shelves? Okay, so she did. Well, since it was my responsibility to keep them in bed, I told her no, and I put her right back on her cot. Being that it was my first day, she didn't recognize me as a regular teacher. So she figured, why listen to this guy? She got up again, twice, and I put her again back both times. As I sat next to her cot, she would sit up, and I had to force her to lie down. Using force, I literally sat there and pressed down on her, on her back, while she used all her little strength to struggle to get free from me. After some several minutes of this, she must have realized that she just wasn't strong enough. She was helpless, and there was nothing she could do to get up from that cot so long as I was there to stop her. That's when she started crying, and loud, too. <laughs> These weren't crocodile tears of any kind. Her eyes were pouring tears, and her face was red with anguish. I didn't know what to do, and I felt embarrassed when the veteran teacher came over to see what was the matter. Luckily for me, the veteran explained to me, this little girl often gives us this problem. She'll take care of it for me. I, I, I can go to the other side of the room. <laughs> Utter helplessness can be a very unpleasant place to be. But James advises us to be in this very position. When we consider our sinful state before God, when we realize what we've done in seeking our personal happiness away from God, we are to be miserable and mourn and weep. James goes further with his chiding commands. He then commands us to let our laughter be turned into mourning and our joy to gloom. What is laughter? Why do we laugh? Well, for many reasons, but laughter is often an external expression of inner joy, bliss, and enjoyment. It is a release of built-up inner happiness, which makes it the direct opposite of weep in this text. Why would James's readers be laughing? Because of the happiness they derived from fulfilling their pleasures and lusts. They are the very ones that James accuses of spiritual adultery. Their laugh came from reveling in sin, from their enjoyment of man-centered happiness. God's word then commands us to stop this expression of joy and instead mourn. The one who laughs in this way becomes the proud one who God opposes, the scoffer whom God scoffs at. Mourning over having laughed in this way shows affliction. It shows humility which God then opens his grace up to. James finishes the sentence with a similar command for their joy to be turned into gloom. Joy, as we learned last week, if you were here, is different than happiness. With joy, there is a deep, embedded, blissful confidence that things are good. Life is good. But James is referencing to a joy that comes from pursuing worldly lusts. Even as believers, we can convince ourselves that life is good without God. What a travesty for us to lie to ourselves in this way and believe it. James commands gloom. Gloom is a downcast depression. It is a feeling that doesn't even allow one to look up. Recall the parable of the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. This tax gatherer felt this gloom, for he was even unwilling to look up when he was beating his breast. It is the utter sorrow that one feels when they know they deserve to be rejected by God. They know they deserve to be rejected by God. It is the feeling that comes from destroying the blessing of freedom to stand in the very sight of God. This is true helplessness. This is affliction. This is humility. And this is the state that one must be in in order to find true happiness that only God can give. The last verse in this section is verse 10. It says, Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here is a solution for James's readers, and the solution for us as well. The solution for anyone who has gone to war with saints and sought friendship with the world in pursuit of man-centered happiness, not from God. We have already seen that humble means to be lowly in spirit, to know of one's needs of God's favor, to be pitiful in the eyes of God to receive and receiving that pity. It's knowing that you have offended God and agonizing over it. It's to bring yourself to a state of affliction because you recognize your sin. 
It's realizing that through your actions, you have destroyed the blessing that God has given to you in this life. To be humble means to be broken. This brokenness and this affliction is acceptable to God. With it, we are free to stand in the presence of God. With it, we can look up and see God face to face. This is what King David presented before God when he pleading for mercy over his sin with Bathsheba. He writes in Psalm 51, verses 14 through 17, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. For thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. Don't you want to be acceptable to God? The one who humbles himself will surely find the freedom to stand before him. And not only that, but there is a promise that goes with this too. Humble yourselves in the presence of God, and he will exalt you. What does it mean to be exalted? Well, literally, it means to be lifted or to be raised up. It can mean to be raised to a higher level of blessedness. It can also mean leaving a lowly state for a better one. It can even be used to emphasize the extreme vastness between a poor and a blessed state. Now, if we consider the context, it is easy to see that the state of the humble is at the lowest it can be. And considering that it is God who exalts the humble, every reason to be sad, every reason to be in anguish, and every reason to be in misery will be taken away. What is left is a state of exalted bliss that only God can bring, a state of happiness that one could never attain on his own away from God. It is God's happiness a true anchor for our inner joy that sustains us through all trials and all tribulations, all pain and suffering, all dangers in life, including death. Now notice that suffering does not cease. It doesn't come to an end. But suffering losses, uh, excuse me, but suffering loses its ability to make us despair because as exalted ones, we have the joy of the Lord, not a cheap man-centered counterfeit that cannot possibly compare. We are truly happy because we are blessed with, what, with the freedom to stand in the sight of God. Well, what will you pursue then? What will you say when there's a choice to be made between the world and God? Will you say that God wants you to be happy? Will you destroy by the choices will you destroy by your choices the blessing of fellowship with the saints of God? Will you do away with a friendship with the spirit of God and will you forego your freedom to stand in the sight of God? Or will you choose heavenly bliss by submitting to God? Let's pray. Father God, as we bring this message to a close, we just want to thank you for revealing in your word, Father, that uh, humility is a state which uh, is acceptable to you, Father. And even though affliction is hard, affliction is terrible, we pray that you would uh, open our hearts to it and open our desire that we might uh, be willing to go there, Father, in light of our sin. You look at our sin, Father, and you are disgusted. And we look at our sin, Father, and we want more of it. We would pray, Father, that you would teach us to throw away the sin and choose God and choose to be happy with what you give us. We pray that you would uh, make us comforted and that you would exalt us, Father, to a high place that we cannot possibly attain on our own, seeking our own will and our own happiness. Amen.